to the Violence, Conflict and Development podcast at SOAS University of London, where we invite scholars and practitioners to discuss the challenges and invite critical reflection on what it means to research and advocate across this field. And welcome to the first episode of the SOAS Violence, Conflict and Development podcast, where we will be speaking with some of the key figures of the Violence, Conflict and the Development Master's program here at SOAS, including course convener Christopher Kramer, Head of Development Studies Zoe Marriage and Professor of Conflict and Development Jonathan Goodhand. Christopher, um, what was it that, about violence, conflict and development that first drew you to the subject? Thank you very much. I'm not sure. I think it was a sort of slowly forming interest. When I did my undergraduate history degree, one of the things I studied and that most appealed to me was the Mau Mau anti-colonial movement uprising in Kenya, after which I, I went to Kenya and so on. And then when I was later doing an MPhil in the economics and politics of development, for some reason, I became very, very interested in the conflicts that were then underway. I'm, I'm giving away some my age, probably. In Angola and Mozambique, particularly. And that drew a more particular academic interest. And that's what I ended up then doing a, a PhD on, which was the political economy of, of war in, in Angola and Mozambique. And I more or less sort of dropped that, really. But as we'll see, in a way, it, that, that it came back. It came back into the work that I did and then grew into this professional interest. And Jonathan, uh, what about you? Uh, you've done loads of work with NGOs and the field of conflict and development. What is it that fascinated you about the subject? My interest goes back to when I was an aid worker. And the formative experience for me was when I was an aid worker um, on the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands, frontier regions, working in kind of cross-border assistance in the 1980s. Um, so this was during the Afghan wars, during the height of the huge humanitarian program, and I, I was part of that um, as a very naive, kind of green-behind-the-ears aid worker. And you know, it was obvious that if you worked in that environment, you soon became very conscious of how aid was entangled in the conflict. and how it was part of a political economy that had a lot of very uh, kind of difficult and kind of ambiguous effects. And, and subsequently, I, I worked with Save the Children Fund in Sri Lanka in another war zone. And I guess it was that experience of, of being part of, if you like, a, a war economy linked to aid that kind of got me to, to think about that experience and to reflect upon it. And then, like, like Chris, in a way, I ended up doing a PhD on the relationship between aid and conflict. So it was, it's going back to that experience. And then I joined SOAS just, I think it was in the, at the end of the first year of VCD. So I kind of brought in that kind of background and uh, joined the teaching team. So quite early on from when the course first started, and Zoe, you, before you moved on to be head of the development department, you were the course convener before Chris. Um, what was it about the course that you were so interested about? Well, I, I have been the, the programme convener, it's true, but Chris was, I think, the first programme convener back in the day, and then Jonathan came on board, and I came in a little bit later when the course was already up and running. Um, my kind of moment was one month after my first degree, I was doing a kind of scheme with the UNHCR that took me to a refugee camp in Ethiopia, Dima Refugee Camp, where 
in one month I suddenly became very familiar with all the contradictions of, of giving aid and also the politics of refugee assistance and of military activity within refugee camps. And uh, on the back of that, I decided to do a master's degree and then went on to do a PhD. And my PhD was about humanitarian assistance and, and I worked in Sierra Leone, in Rwanda, Congo and South Sudan. And it was just as I was finishing up my PhD, this man called Jonathan Goodhand got in touch and said, oh, we're looking for somebody to be a teaching assistant on, on the VCD programme. Uh, would you be interested in doing that? So that's how I got involved. I think a lot of the students taking the course can really relate to what are the things you're saying in the sense that they're really fascinated between the the field work and the academic side of conflict and aid. So then just going back to the course, what was the origins of creating the VCD course? What really sort of prompted the creation of it? What do you think is the key sort of reason to have this line of inquiry and scholarship? I mean, I, I think that, you know, in the 1990s, there was a post-Cold War um, rush. There was a sort of surge of activity and interest. There was a, a rash of peacekeeping and peace-building interventions and operations. So there was lots of people through a range of agencies that were getting involved more and more in this. And then certainly early on post-Cold War, there'd been quite a lot of optimism. And this was the beginnings of the so-called idea of the confidence in the, in the so-called liberal peace perspective. And major agencies like the World Bank were taking a new interest in trying to make sense of the, the causes, the dynamics, the ending of violent conflicts and so on. And parallel to that, there was a a rising academic interest across different disciplines as well. And around that time, I was teaching just on a development. That's all we had in, in our department was a development studies master's. We were a small new department. And in the core course on the political economy of development, because of the PhD that I had done on Angola and Mozambique, each year I gave one lecture on the political economy of violence. And we, we sort of sensed that there was quite a strong reaction. There was quite a strong interest in that uh, from the students and a demand. And so we put these things together and we took a punt, really. We just decided to, to try something which turned out to, um, to be really successful. And we had, you know, we, so we launched VCD in 2000, 2001. And I think there were 25 students in the first year, but it quite quickly snowballed from there. I think what's the other thing that's very important to say about the beginning and the origins and the role of VCD is that we have always felt that we we filled a gap. So there were, if you, you know, there were a lot of degree programs that were war studies, let's say, and there were peace studies programs too, and, and they were very, very good, all of those. And of course, there were development studies, master's programs, but what there wasn't was something that put at the centre stage the linkages in different directions between development and whatever that is and violence, however it's defined and manifest. And what we tried to do was to look at violence and violence conflict through a development lens and, and vice versa. I agree with Chris. I think there was a kind of, um, there was a moment in the 1990s and that's certainly part of the influence that led to my PhD research as well. And there was this optimism post-Cold War and the possibility of NGOs reaching a lot of spaces they'd not been able to reach before, making a more profound impact, the professionalisation of, of NGOs, and it became like a, a very kind of respected career path where it previously had been quite disparate. And that all came up against the reality of 
trying to work in unbelievably different contexts in, in Rwanda, in Bosnia, um, and a real kind of moment of reckoning for the aid industry, which had grown very quickly, uh, had lots of passionate people involved, and ran into the question of accountability, like ran into as a new run into a wall. And the Sphere project that came around that time, the GIA project that came out of the fiasco in, in Rwanda, led to this kind of moment of reckoning when NGOs were like, how are we going to deal with the complexity and the impossibility of some of the contexts in which we work. Um, and I think one of the questions that is at the centre of that is similar to one of the questions that's the centre of the Violence, Conflict and Development programme, which is the relationship, as, as Chris is talking about, between conflict and development and this kind of breaking open the idea that development is one thing and conflict kind of wrecks it a bit, to accept that, that there's a lot of violence within development, that violence shapes how development takes place. We, you know, the course that I then came onto was taking that as a very serious proposition rather than seeing conflict and violence something as only something that disrupted uh, the otherwise kind of unproblematic processes of development. Well, I think I mean, it's just really kind of drawing on things that, that all of us have written about, Chris in particular. But you know, there was a moment of the 1990s of liberal optimism and. Uh, you could see that in the policy world of the, these kind of transformational ambitions around changing uh, states that were so-called, you know, fragile or in crisis through these kind of multi-mandate operations. And, and, and tied to this was a very optimistic view, a very naive view in many ways of the world and a, a kind of an amnesia. And I guess at the heart of the same time as this was going on, there was a body of literature that was drawing on political economy perspectives to look much more critically and much more historically at these kinds of processes. And I think that was at the heart of VCD. And I get it, Chris, is your book where you talk about the tragic and the melancholic kind of view of, of history. I guess this, the course is really trying to, to grapple with the violence that's endemic to, inherent to these processes of development. And I think it was unusual in doing that. Um, because if you know the, the work on peace studies, the, the stuff on security studies or terrorism studies, they're all looking at conflict in different ways, but they're not looking at it in these terms. And I think there's a bit of a, um, a you know there's a tension within the course around that because you know what do you do with a tragic view of history? Mm. You know what do you do it in policy with it in terms for those who are trying to engage with violence? So I think that's a very productive tension we get with students who often come from the field or asking those questions about what do we do about conflict. Chris is saying, well, actually, you know, there are these long-term structural issues that we have to grapple with before we even start to answer that question. Um, so do you think SOAS, obviously just an institution as well, to be giving this course has a very unique focus as well? Does it play a factor in that? I think the things that Jonathan has just been saying in particular, they in a way they're, you know, they're, they're part and parcel of what SOAS is, insofar as um, I think that there's a, a general commitment within SOAS that's very common to decentering a, a kind of Western superiority perspective and to challenge mainstream perspectives on anything really. And certainly Within our part of SOAS, that comes out of quite a long tradition of critical political economy, both in the economics department and in development studies. So it's, it's rooted, yes, I think you're right, within quite powerful traditions within SOAS. And then actually, you know, that links to something else that's really important in sustaining VCD as a successful programme, which is the students. 
who come to us, who are themselves remarkably diverse and very, very challenging of accepted conventional wisdom. So it's a sort of productive marriage, I hope and think. It's interesting you mentioned students because my next question would be what kind of students that you, you hoped to have attracted with this course or the kind of students you've seen coming to this course showed you anything has have you sort of learned anything from that i think there's a few cohorts of students uh, who we reliably welcome onto the course those who have come through from maybe a different ba and want to move into the area of development and probably on the violence and conflict side of that so maybe working in in conflict affected countries or humanitarian assistance or or similar and then there's the students who have a few years of experience uh, working in contexts of violence and there's always a few people who have three, five, ten years of experience and have felt the need to reflect on those experiences and weirdly <laughs> choose an incredibly high intensity master's programme as, as a kind of pause from their career to give them a chance to come to terms with the stuff that they see and and it is a you know it's for us it's normal you know you included we we get into this way of thinking that violence and conflict are, are the sorts of things that fill everybody's minds but actually it's, it's a very emotionally and psychologically weighty set of subjects that we deal with and the course gives students who've got experience working in situations of violent conflict a chance to be normal that's to say that others have the same experience. You can talk about your experiences, you know, in difficult circumstances, the things that you've seen, the contradictions that you've encountered, the kind of moral and ethical challenges that you might have had. And to have that kind of environment where you can discuss that on a personal level and also on an analytical level. And then there's, there's always a few students who are a bit older as well. And, and that's, I think, gives another great kind of perspective. People who've had maybe a different career or are wanting a sort of later in life career change and they want something that's really challenging, that is completely different to what they've done, that takes them kind of to a different place as a kind of capstone to their, maybe to their professional life. So there's a range of ages across the student body. I mean, obviously there are some demographic bulges or some demographies that are demographic slices that are more heavily represented. I should talk maybe in terms of geographical uh, spread as well. We we have had a lot of students from, from America, from the UK, from Europe and from India and several students also from Japan, Korea. We struggle to get enough students from the African continent and that's always been a difficulty. I mean it's a difficulty across universities in, in England anyway, in the UK. They're very expensive. There are all sorts of hurdles to be cleared in order to get into a university in the UK. But when we have had those students there, it's also obviously a fantastic enrichment to our programme to have people who are coming from very different kinds of life experiences and perspectives. And it's the diversity of our student body in terms of age, geographical spread and whatever, and professional experience and, and also being interdisciplinary. We have people coming from very different sorts of undergraduate backgrounds um, that really you know, enriches the sorts of discussions that we have on the programme. So you'll have, for example, a Nigerian police officer, but also a Sudanese person who's worked in NGOs for several years, or, or somebody who's from South Africa who's worked in, in different kinds of organisation. And, and what Zoe's saying is terribly important, because in that context, students are not only finding a sort of echo and a normality in their experience, but they're also learning from each other just as much as, if not more than, from listening to us. I wish when I uh, arrived back in the UK as a burnt-out aid worker, there'd been a, a VCD course then, and I would have uh, exactly what I would have needed to try and work out what and make sense of my experiences. Uh, another thing I suppose to add is that um, 
The course has been very popular, and that is certainly not being because of SaaS marketing. And uh, <laughs> it's been very popular because of word of mouth and the networks of the students. You know, there is a very strong sense of um, the kind of cohesiveness that emerges from the, the, the cohort and spreading the word. And so many of the students I talked to said they heard about it from somebody else or they bumped into somebody in an office in Kabul or Colombo. Or often, yeah, I, I'm forever bumping into VCD students in different parts of the world. So I think um, there is something about the energy the course creates mm-hmm. and the, the students it attracts, which is, is important. And I think this sounds like a marketing uh, bid here, but I think employers know what they it's probably overstating but they know what they're getting with a vcd student they know that they're going to be somebody who thinks critically and independently and they've not just done this course to get a degree yeah there is something distinctive i think about the student uh, cohort on vcd i'd say something too about the size of the cohort because i think sometimes master's students come in and think they're going to be like one of three or four and they get there and there's like a lecture theater full of students and some courses are very big and some courses are very small and VCD has always been sort of towards the higher end but not as big as very large programs and it does for me when I've been convener it's really been the perfect number of students it's always between sort of 60 and 90 except in extremely in fact usually between 60 and 75 except in exceptional years and that's a cohort that you can everyone can get to know each other there's always going to be somebody who shares your interest in, you know, gender. Is it in Iran? Is it in, you know, do you have an interest in security or whatever? You're going to find people who can align with you and have really in-depth and sensible conversations about your dissertation topic, for example. And I want to kind of really reinforce, I think Chris said, you know, that that's obviously we expect the students to learn easily as much from each other as they learn from us because it is about generating an intellectual community that we welcome every year new students into. But then those students also go out and there's a kind of wider intellectual community or VCD alumni there in the world who talk to each other and they talk across cohorts and they recommend it to their friends and and all the rest and and there is I mean it's of course we're tiny in the world but because of the quite specialist nature of the program of course they do they gravitate to northern Uganda to Kabul to South Sudan you know so they do meet up with each other and they all think it's amazingly coincidental but it's not it's all part of a plan you know this is about us you know generating an intellectual community that changes the way that policymakers, practitioners, analysts, researchers think about the relationship between violence, conflict and development. One of the things where we we sort of where we learned from students in a way and where we see that passion and the interaction between them is in one of the things that we do as an assessment in the core course, which is the group case study presentations. In the first halfway through the first year of VCD, I ran a little feedback brainstorming thing with the students and asked for some ideas and one of the things they suggested was that we do more on case studies so out of that we created this assessed group case study presentation and you know they've just been a a marvel really they're they're fantastic every year i love we used to have two days listening to them in person now they're they're submitted you know video presentations and so on but they're fantastic to listen to and i think we often learn quite a lot from that experience it's a great great pleasure to see the ideas and the connections filtering through into distilled into those really short punchy presentations 
I think something else as well linking to that is that um, the commitment, of course, to empiricism. To I mean, all of us are researching in different parts of the world. So the teaching team we're all researching different parts of the world. We come from different disciplinary backgrounds, and the research, you know, is a kind of a starting point for all of us. I think a starting point for our engagement with these issues. And so we're trying to kind of relate these big ideas to realities on the ground and so i mean the case study i think brings a lot of that together really nicely so you know we're not kind of hovering above you know we're not just giving a bird's eye view of these things we're not just talking about kind of global political economy we're zooming down to particular contexts particular places and to try and capture the the perspectives of people who are living through these kinds of situations i think and that's what's so interesting about the course is that it's also so practical by zooming in and looking in at all these sort of case studies and examining it. And then so going to that kind of side of things, since you've all worked on this course, have you seen any major developments in the field of violence, conflict and development in general, just in, on the academic sphere in general or in policy making or in anything like that? I can maybe give one version of an answer. I mean, the answer must, of course, be yes, because we've been doing it for 20 years now. Well, my colleagues have been doing it for 20 years, and that's 20 years of extraordinary change in the world and also of extraordinary pace of change in the world. But I'd like to move just away from the core module now. So we've been talking about you know, the core module as if it's a programme, but of course the programme is larger than that. And I put on an op- optional module called Security kind of two or three years after I joined SOAS, and Chris and Jonathan have their m- optional module, Water Peace Transitions. And both of these, I mean, for a while this was the kind of s- staple fare for a VCD. We had a slightly different programme structure, and lots of students would take the VCD, then one of the other cores, and then they take Water Peace and Security. And that was the kind of gold standard uh, VCD programme for a while. And what I was able to do with my security module, because I was teaching it by myself, it was something that I created by myself, was to bring in kind of a whole range of forms of security threat that would be presented, or rather a whole range of threats that felt kind of within, just about within or just about without traditional security theorising and see how we could start to think about those threats in, in terms of a security response to them. And that came, I mean, obviously influences were such as 2001 and the idea of, of terrorism now becoming a major player in, the, in international politics and international terrorism and that particular brand of international terrorism. It's not saying that terrorism was invented at that moment. There was a moment in 2001 where we changed the way that we thought about international security. And to build on that and, and then to incorporate other things, I've, I've been talking about pandemics and climate change now for 15 years within my security module. And I think one of the things that I find refreshing and terrifying each year as I, you know, we kind of zoom in after August and we start to prepare for the next academic year is how much changes every single year in terms of the threats that people face around the world. And it links back to the ideas of violence and conflict, and particularly the ideas, I should say, of structural violence, how we can understand uh, things like pandemics and and climate change, uh, the oil trade, in terms of structural forms of violence, but also the very real kind of direct violence that people experience as a result of those, and the sorts of decisions that are shaped by those experiences. So it links very much back into the processes of development and the processes of violence. And I think one of the kind of core notions of the Violence, Conflict and Development programme is the idea that conflict and development are both processes and they, they interact with each other. And my work on security, which is manifested in the, in the security module that I teach, 
looks at those kinds of prices as well. And, and Chris and Johnson can maybe speak to the, the War to Peace transitions, also obviously about processes, to talk about also how those those kinds of debates have played off and played into the, the core course of the programme as well. That's really interesting, the, the way you put that, Zoe. I mean, to pick up on that, I think there's a couple of things. One is in terms of changes in the question that you asked, and as Zoe's saying, there's a sort of constantly evolving range of vulnerabilities, forms of violence, threats to security that, that people around the world face. Another is perhaps, you know, we began by talking about the origins of the programme and an era of high confidence internationally in, you know, outsiders can come and solve all of these problems in low and middle income countries. And I think a lot of that has gone as if, if you like, a, a real crisis of, for example, the liberal peace approach. And that changes and opens up the game, the, the, the range of discussion. And I think another thing that comes with that and with other global changes, a range of new actors getting involved in conflicts globally. So there are things like that that we have to adapt to, take account of. Um, there are shifts in ideas within the academic literature. There are shifts in methods and tools. One of the things I think has become very, very interesting is the proliferation of mapping and geoinformatics, spatial analysis and stuff. So we have to kind of combine different forms of evidence and different methods for gathering evidence to get at some of the same problems. So the whole field is changing in different ways. But the other thing that Zoe was talking about, I mean, we may have different perspectives on this, the three of us, but an idea that we work with in the programme is this idea of a, of a continuum or of continua of violence and these sort of links so that some programs, perhaps a little bit like us, tend to focus almost exclusively on things that qualify as wars, so-called civil wars or major armed conflicts. And they're really, really important. But we reach far beyond that and we talk about different forms, all the way down to whether it's riots or policing violence or, as Zoe mentions, forms of structural violence or it's intimate partner violence. Homes are often not refuges. They're, they're um, you know, sites of extreme conflict and, and coercion of different kinds. And then there's the issue of, well, what are there linkages between these things? I don't know. Some of my own experiences in observing things partly led me to take this seriously. I, I mean, just to give you one little story, if I may, you know, there was a weekend that I always go back to and think about when I was living in South Africa in 1993 during the transition and working there. And I went to a deep rural part of South Africa in the northeast and to spend some time with colleagues who were doing a, a rural labour market survey. And I was working particularly with a group of they were basically illegal Mozambican refugees, most of them women, who had left from the war. They'd been displaced from their homes by violence, by a, a civil war within Mozambique. And although that war had formally ended, and they'd left, they'd crossed through very, very dangerous, you know, barbed wire, wild animal, you know, located the Kruger National Park and so on, into South Africa. And they were, many of the women were working for highly capitalized, sophisticated agricultural export firms in South Africa. And when we were talking to these people, I noticed this, and I took a photograph that I've probably shown you, actually, which is... Uh, was drawn by a very young girl on the, on the wall of the hut where she was living with her aunt. And the drawing is, you know, it's heartbreaking, but it was a drawing of what happened to her mother. And it's a Renamo soldier gunning down her mother. 
It was a very sort of visceral experience of the suffering involved, a very human, not academic suffering. But this was clearly and quite interestingly linked into dynamics of labor markets and capitalist development within South Africa. And at the same time, that same weekend, I was driving back to Johannesburg when the radio announced the assassination of the leader of the Communist Party, Chris Harney, at the time. And that was a moment that threw into complete wobble the entire transition out of apartheid into democracy. And there was an extraordinarily intense moment. And you're joining these dots. You're saying, are these just very, very different episodes of suffering and of violence within one region, Southern Africa? Or are there some quite intricate connections between them? And one thing that helps you to work through some of those connections rather than forcing them, is an appreciation of history. And I think one of the things we all try to do through our work on our research and our teaching on, on violence, conflict and development is partly to inject a historical awareness of some of the sort of deeper roots of, uh, of the experiences we see. So that, that's just a sort of way in, one way into this, this idea of the continuum of violence that I think Zoe was also talking about. There's this question about how the course has changed. I mean, it's, it's, I just was reflect, reflecting on it a little bit, and it's partly about how the world has changed and how the empirical processes that we're studying look different now from 20 years ago, and they're also how the policy world has changed, how it's responding to these processes or not, and then how our course is kind of reflecting on that um, in response to also changes and shifts in the academic literature, whether these are kind of methodological or kind of conceptual changes. I think in some ways what we could do is just follow the changes in the policy world and just keep track. I mean, in a sense, become be policy-driven. The policy language is changing. Okay, this week it was fragile states. Next week it's um, transnational organised crime. There's a lot of kind of fashions within the policy world. And I guess in the course there's a, a tension, and I think it's a, a positive tension between kind of keeping a core kind of focus on the, these kind of long-term trends, which, for instance, my work on drugs... The debates on drugs are kind of dominated by criminologists and law and order experts or technical specialists, and very few are looking at the kind of connections that Chris was just talking about around drugs as a development issue, and it's, it's tied up into questions around development and conflict in so many kind of complex ways you can't talk about now. But kind of keeping hold of that kind of analytical framework and not being driven completely by the change in policy discourse, I think is important. At the same time, we're seeking to be, if you like, policy relevant. And we are seeking to try and address these these questions because students want to engage with them. So it goes back to that kind of um, difficulty we all struggle with with a policy, a political economy approach. It doesn't lend itself readily to a set of policy prescriptions or solutions, but it does what Chris was talking about, helps you start joining up the dots and the connections and to think in a more integrated and a deeper way about how to engage in these kinds of processes. And I think giving people a sense when they go back into the field to have a sense of kind of modesty and humility about their capacity to to change these processes. I think that's really important. It's giving students a set of ways of tools for asking the right kind of questions. I'm so glad we've started this podcast because you've all given us such huge themes that we can address and several different episodes just to finish off we've got two questions from students that 
we'd love you to get give answers on. And one is climate change has been a huge thing. So one question is, what ways do you see the climate crisis impacting the process of conflict and violence now and over the next 10 years or so? So you started talking about the, the work you've done on that in the security auction. Do you want to start? <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Well, I think, I think climate change is going to affect absolutely everything. So it's not just our program. And I think this is when Jonathan was talking about policy relevance. I completely agree. You know, we engage with professionals. You know, we understand that the students are coming in who want to work in a professional capacity in this area as when they leave. At the same time, we don't shape the entirety of the policy environment, unfortunately. And one of the things that the security module draws attention to is the inherent power in terms of what is securitized and what is not and how we respond to different sorts of threats. And the climate threat was one that was, you know, practically impossible to think about in security terms until really two or three years ago. Lots of people were sort of trying and not quite getting there. But issues of intentionality of who benefits, these sorts of questions that we can ask from even from a political economy perspective it's really quite difficult to answer why we've got to the complete mess that we've got to in terms of climate change. I mean, yes, we can talk about oil companies, we can talk about the difficulty of changing cultures and ways of, that people enjoy kind of moving around and, and consuming things. We can talk about the whole process of development and that being, in a sense, completely contrary to or that being a major cause, let's say, of, of climate change. So we see sustainable development as, as in itself a, a contradiction. So it's going to change things, it's going to change inequality, it's going to change migration patterns, it's going to change the capacity of countries to cope, communities to cope, it's going to change geography, it's going to be huge, it will change all framings of all violent conflicts and all the means with which violent conflicts are conducted. I'm sure my colleagues can say equally bleak things. I'd like to just um, <laughs> talk a little bit about resistance as well, though. And the last book that I wrote was mainly about resistance and, in a sense, moving away from where we are as policymakers and as people with kind of educations and professional jobs and influence and power and saying how is it that other people are able to respond to ubiquitous and unrelenting threats. And this is essentially, you know, the whole of the history of the world and that's I was doing it specifically through a study of capoeira as an artistic cultural expression that brings people together gives them a sense of community gives them a sense of history and identity and that being a force in itself in a way that people are able to to resist forms of violence that they encounter so it's not an answer at all the first part was the answer to your question it will change everything and the world will become a lot more difficult to live in and in a sense, what do we need to change? We need to change everything in order to counter the uh, violent, direct and structural forms of violence that will result from climate change. And the study of culture is gives us an idea of how difficult it is and why it's difficult for us to make the changes and in a sense answers the question of why we haven't made those changes until now because it involves questioning absolutely every single part of our identity, our history and our community. So those are the things that I identify. So would you say we're not prepared at all to to face what's coming? I think we're really, really badly prepared if we're prepared at all, yeah. I don't see anything significant in the way that the world has responded to the threats that posed by climate change. Anyone else want to add to that? I, I did try to keep it upbeat, you know, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it failed um, about um, more about how the course can... I'm not going to 
pretend I'm not an expert on this area, which is not kind of a cop-out. It's not... We all, as, as human beings rather than academics, um, are profoundly concerned about this issue. We've got to think, though, as academics, where we have a comparative advantage to intervene in these kinds of conversations. We're not natural scientists, we're not climate change experts, but I think it's clear for VCD we are going to have to bring in these perspectives much more into the course. You know, it's an absolute no-brainer that we need to because it impinges directly on the kinds of things that we're looking at around violence and development and understanding how little de-development is a process of the expansion of an even expansion of capitalism has created these kind of sets of conditions and the kinds of things we in the course where we talk about the distributive impacts of these things. We've got to be looking at that in relation to climate issues and also the, the violence of policies which are being used to kind of curtail you know, migration and the impacts of attempts to respond to migration. So I think we have the kinds of frameworks, analytical tools we're deploying can speak to these issues. And I think that we need to incorporate that more. That doesn't mean having you know, a separate session in VCD on climate change and, uh, you know, and, and, and so on, but to incorporate it in throughout the course a little bit more. I think that's, that's a challenge for us. And it also brings uh, questions about how we relate to other degrees at SOAS and also the bringing in different expertise within the team. Can I, can I just add two things? I mean, I, th- I think all of those things are absolutely right. I think one of the things where we have to think quite carefully is about evidence and about uncertainty because one of the things that comes with thinking through the implications of climate change is extraordinary levels of uncertainty, mixed but often inadequate levels of of evidence. So, you know, one slightly parallel example where I worked on coffee policy and production in rural Ethiopia, there's some fascinating work done on the implications of climate change for the future of coffee production in Ethiopia. And the problem is you have to conduct that analysis. This is a bunch of scientists at Kew, in fact. You have to conduct that analysis in the context and the presence of really, really fundamental uncertainty about exactly what's going to happen. You know something, you've got some ways of measuring, but not nearly enough. And that's before you think about, well, what will be the policy responses, what will be the migratory responses, the institutional responses. So it's really, really difficult. And I think we have to take this very seriously, but be very, very wary of overly simplistic ideas about what will be the outcomes. In the same way that in the past there was a a literature, there were big claims made about environmental scarcity as a cause, as a frontline cause for armed conflict. And then there was a very, very critical debate about that that opened up debate around the evidence and so on and so forth. And in some ways that whole debate is being revived, but it's going to have to take new directions. And I think that um, Zoe and Jonathan are right, we will be paying more and more attention to those sorts of debates within the courses. I wanted to ask Zoe a question, which is you said that, you know, some years ago, it would have been unthinkable to to see this as a security issue. Would you also say that the securitization of climate change, as the securitization of so many other things, can itself be problematic? Yes, completely. I mean, securitization is a very anti-democratic process. So, yes, you might be able to do, you know, some things you can respond to because they're urgent, 
But you may find that by moving them out of the kind of ordinary debate and into the security emergency agenda, you're going to cut corners that will have other kinds of consequences. And I guess is that what COVID pandemic also pushed into light? The certain areas where certain states had to make decisions that were not necessarily democratic, but ended up being because it's an emergency situation. I guess in a concluding way to this, students, I guess, now should be expecting or should be looking for how we incorporate the issue of the climate crisis into the course. And also, since that it's such a massive topic, maybe we can get you, Zoe, into another sit-down podcast discussion to go more in-depth about it. Yeah, no, obviously, I'll be, I'll be pleased to do that. So thank you so much for taking the time and speaking about VCD and your experiences. And um, it's been really fun. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by Conrad Sudar Chatterjee, Lauren Elizabeth Grant, Mahitab Shaban Khalil Saeed, and Ru'a Al Amri. To know more about the Violence, Conflict, and Development Program, head to the SOAS website. If you would like to collaborate or have any comments, feel free to reach out to us. For more content, head to our blog and check our Instagram page for more updates.